Well, good morning. Hello, when the lights come on, I see somebody's there. So good to see you this morning, and uh, glad you're here with us. Maybe it's your first time here with us. Maybe you've been here before, but uh, always glad to have you, and always glad to see you. Uh, very excited this morning because today we come to the last of our messages, or the last of our series we called Got Questions, or Question and Answer, whatever you want to call it. But this is the last of a three-part series that we do, um, maybe annually. We're trying to work that out where we do it annually because what we love about it is the questions that we get are challenging, refreshing, and we know what you're asking. And as a matter of fact, I often said, the problem with the church today is often that we are answering the questions no one's asking and dodging the questions everyone's asking, right? Sometimes we choose to just take the easiest questions and we try to very hard in this series to listen to the questions that you've asked and then to try to answer them. Uh, and by the way, you'll hear more at the end, but we're opening that all up again now for the next time we do this. So if you had a question that you just, you thought, oh, I wish I'd have submitted a question, well, now's your chance. You can submit it, and for the next series, perhaps it'll be chosen. I don't know who chose this question that we're going to talk about today, but boy, am I glad they did. A great question that is not so hard to answer, but very hard to wrap our minds around. Right? One of those that requires some faith, and one of those requires some, really, I believe, some enlightening from the Holy Spirit of God to help us to see. It has to do with titles. <clears throat> it has to do with titles. And we all know titles are important, right? They're important at least to some degree. Uh, titles tell us uh, sometimes who the person is that we're talking about, maybe what they do. For instance, we know Princess Diana or Queen Elizabeth or President Reagan or uh, Reagan or President Trump or whomever. I don't know where Reagan came from. I meant to say Trump. Anyway, uh, the truth of the matter is those are titles that tell us something about their position, something about who they are or what they're doing. Maybe it's a job title, right? Maybe it is a, a, a CEO or, or maybe a, a director of human resources or, or who knows what else we might say, even campus pastor, right? Or worship leader. Titles that are meant to mean something. Today, our question revolves around titles, two titles that are both assigned to the Lord Jesus himself. Two titles, Son of God, and Son of Man. Have you heard both of those? Son of God and Son of Man. Now here's the question that was sent. So let me give it to you in the purest form. The question that was sent in is, why is Jesus, who is called the Son of God, called the Son of Man? Great question. On the surface, it may seem to you to be simple to answer, and maybe it is, but maybe there's more to it than we think. Are those two thoughts, are those two titles contradicting of each other are those two titles able to come together into one union how do you un make make a union bring a, a union out of son of god and son of man great question well on the surface um these two titles we know are both used of jesus the the one you know of son of god is probably kind of you, you knew about that but what about this title son of man have you heard it before if not, it's not because of it's not used in Scripture much. Actually, it's used in Scripture a lot. It's found in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. In the Old Testament, it is mainly in the book of Ezekiel. I don't know how familiar you are with Ezekiel's prophecy. Incredible book. And often, Ezekiel refers to himself as the Son of Man, or as a Son of Man, I should say. 
The second place it occurs in the Old Testament is in the book of Daniel. I'm going to look at that in just a moment. Then we flip to the New Testament, and it's used throughout the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's used two times uh, outside of the Gospels, and it's used the remainder of times within the four Gospels. Just to give you an idea, I jotted down these facts I thought were interesting. It appears 94 times. I'm talking about that title, Son of Man. It appears 94 times in the book of Ezekiel, twice in the book of of Daniel. It occurs 29 times in Matthew's gospel, 14 times in Mark's gospel, 26 times in Luke's gospel, and 13 times in John's gospel. Now, interestingly enough... It is used a lot, and all of those different usages. I looked at this. I thought about this question. I thought, what a great question. Let me make sure we're right on this. So I did a lot of checking. There seems to be no rhyme or reason. The the number of times it's used in the gospel seems to be based on the size of the gospel itself, the, the book itself. So there's no correlation there. So what is this correlation between Son of Man and Son of God? Well, the natural idea, the natural response is, and, and, and maybe in some ways <clears throat> the safe response is this. Maybe you've already thought of it. Well, Son of God refers to his deity, and Son of Man refers to what? His humanity. Because we know this to be true. And I'll talk about this some. I'm not going to go into this in depth. You can check out our more video online. And I'm going to talk about this hypostatic union. That is this union between God and man in a little bit more detail. And give you some other passages. But here's in essence what we're saying. We're saying that we know and understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now again, that's an easy answer. Not so easy to wrap your mind around. Right? Let's just be honest. How do we understand or grasp in our finite minds that God can wrap himself in flesh and be at the same time fully God and fully man? So the, the, the conventional answer to that question is that Son of Man speaks of his humanity, maybe his weakness or humility as it is used in Ezekiel, but Son of God speaks of his deity. Now, While I am in full agreement with that, can I just explore a different avenue for you for a minute? Consider this, for example. When we get to the Gospels, outside of two places, two places someone calls Jesus the Son of Man. And let me read them to you. In Acts chapter 7, verse 55, you remember when Stephen was being stoned to death? He became the first martyr. Here's what Stephen said. It said, Acts chapter 7, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen refers to him as the Son of Man. Second place it occurs is Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1. Remember that incredible revelation of, Je- of Jesus Christ that John the apostle gives us? In chapter 1 he says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Dressed in a robe with a golden sash. Wrapped around his chest. So these two instances, someone refers to Jesus as a son of man. And by the way, both of them in context of what? His deity. Interestingly, not in context of his humanity, but in the context of his deity. When Stephen mentions it, what? He sees him at the right hand of God and he's standing and he's there as God. 
incredible. And then when John mentions it in the Revelation, he sees him as deity on the, at the throne of God. Now, what am I saying? <laughs> I'm saying this. I think there is a connection between the Son of Man and deity. Not just the Son of God, but rather it could be that the Son of Man was intended to convince mankind not of his humanity, but of his deity. Let me tell you what I mean. If you go to the Gospels and look at all those times when the Son of Man occurs, you know what you discover? If you observe it carefully, what you discover is that no person outside of John in Revelation chapter 1, outside of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, nowhere in the New Testament do you see a person calling Jesus Son of Man. You see Jesus declaring himself as the Son of Man. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. Now, there are some scholars who believe that Jesus was convincing or trying to convince his disciples, his followers of his humanity. But I want to suggest this to you. I'm not sure they needed to be convinced of his humanity. I'm pretty sure they knew he was the son of the carpenter. You remember how they referred to him? They knew that he grew up in this little village, this no-name village, this no-place village called Nazareth. Today, Nazareth is a teeming city, but in that day, just a few hundred people. And you remember someone said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'm pretty sure they knew his humanity. Because guess what? When they stopped to eat because they were hungry, he ate because he was hungry. When they stopped to rest because they were tired, he rested. As a matter of fact, you remember the story of the woman at the well, one of the most famous stories in all of the, the Gospels where it says that Jesus was sitting by a well in Samaria and a woman came to him, and, and it's an incredible story. But can I remind you of the setting? Why is he there at the well? He's there at the well because he said to his disciples, we've been walking all the way from Jerusalem to the Galilee. I'm tired. I'm going to wait here by the well. You guys go into town and buy the food and come back. Now, we know, I understand, that omniscient God knew that that woman was there and was going to deal with that. I understand that, but don't miss his humanity. He's sitting down. He's thirsty. He's tired, like anyone else. When she comes up, he says, hey, can you give me a drink of water? And he was hot. He sweats. When he's cold, he covers up. When he's crossing the Sea of Galilee, he's tired. He goes to sleep in the boat. Of course, when he wakes up, he stills the storm. Why? Because he's fully God, but he's fully man. I'm not so sure he needed to convince them of that. Now, maybe so. I don't know, but I don't think so. Because all through his time on earth, he's trying to convince men of his deity. I am God. That's the problem. That's the tension. The tension is not to decide whether or not he's a man. As a matter of fact, the tension that grows between the religious leaders and ultimately the Roman officials is that he claims that he is God. And Houston, we got a problem if a man declares that he's God, right? Now, how is the Son of Man tied to deity? Well, first of all, we saw those other two passages. But I want to show you the Daniel passage, knowing that all the Jews would know about Daniel's prophecy. Daniel, Daniel is a man of God, a prophet of God, whom the Jewish people revered and has a place in their, their Bible the, in, under the Nevi'im, the prophets. And he, he was one of the prophets that they revered. Well, I want you to see what he says. In the seventh chapter of his gospel, we'll turn there, and I want to read verse 13 for you. Now, let me set it up first. 
Daniel 7, if you've not studied it, is an incredible passage. And if I try to unpack it all here, we are in for a long afternoon. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just saying, basically, there's four beasts that appear in this vision that Daniel has. And these four beasts represent four empires, four kingdoms. And I'm telling you what, listen, if you're trying to decide today, maybe you're one who just walked in, happened in, and you're trying to say, I don't even know if I believe the Bible, Pastor Eddie. Well, that's okay. But now listen to me carefully. You ought to read Daniel 7 and begin to understand it. Because Daniel prophetically shows us where history was about to go. And it is so accurate. There are scholars who say he couldn't have written this before all that. He couldn't have known. To which I say, God knows everything. And had no problem writing it down before it ever happened. So these four kingdoms appear. And then he starts to see a fifth vision. I pick up reading it in verse number 13. He says, I continued watching in these night visions. And suddenly, watch this, one like what? A son of man. Ah. One like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve. By the way, interesting in the Hebrew, that word serve can also mean worship. Maybe some versions say that. It could be either one. All the people, he says, are serving or worshiping him. His dominion is an everlasting, eternal dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, which king is that? Is that the king of Persia that he's referring to? Nope, we know his demise. Is that the king of Greece that he's referring to? No, we know his demise. Is that the king of Rome, the Roman Empire? No, we know what happened to him. He's referring to the king of glory. The Jewish rabbis accept this son of man as the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Now, why go there? I just want you to get to thinking a little bit this morning about that. Could it be that Jesus is using this title, son of man, rather than son of God, because he knew they understood this prophecy about the Messiah, and they weren't getting it. They weren't getting it. That's why, that's why, they, got, that's why they were fumed when they would think about him. That's why they got so angry when they thought about this teacher from Nazareth. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be God, and we know he's not God. We know he's not. He's just a carpenter's son from Nazareth. And it would, it would enrage them so, so, so much to the point that eventually, eventually, it would lead him to death. And they would cry out, crucify him. Kill this, what they call him? Blasphemer. Why did they call him a blasphemer? Because he claimed to be God. Now understand, he is, by our belief and our faith, fully God and fully man. But could it be that he is trying here to convince them of who he is? Now, let me tell you why that's important. That's important because every one of us today have to figure out who he is. People have to figure that out. We talk to people all the time. I talk to people all the time, and you probably do too, who are trying to figure that out. There was a time, frankly, in my life when I thought everybody believed that Jesus was God. 
I didn't know of anybody who didn't, frankly. That's just how protected I grew up in my little community back in the, well, the day. And then I began to realize not everybody's convinced of who he is. And even today we have conversations often with people who are trying to figure out, is this religion right? Is that religion right? Is the Christian religion right? Or Christian faith right? Or is, the, is Buddhism right? Is Hinduism right? Is, is Islam right? How do we know? How do we know? And you know what? Here's, we, we have people who argue over all this stuff that they're trying to figure out, trying to figure out who is, who is right. And what. Can I just tell you something? There's something that separates our faith that says to me this is right. And it is this. Jesus did not claim to be a prophet, a good prophet, come to be a good person to save good people. He claimed to be God who came to give his life for wicked people, for sinful people who were his enemies. That is revolutionary. And that is what has him in trouble with all of the religious leaders. He's claiming to be God. Now, there's one place that I found, and again, there may be some out there. That I'm qualifying that. It's the only place that I could find. There's one place that I found where these two terms, these two titles come together in the same passage. And I think it's worthwhile for us to look at that passage and to unpack it a little bit because in that passage, he's trying to make the point that I'm talking about. Look at Matthew's Gospel. If you have your Bible, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Maybe you're familiar with the story. Maybe not. I'll try to set it up for you because you need to understand the setting and the background to understand the passage. Beginning in verse number 13, listen to what Matthew records. Remember, Matthew is an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry on earth. Matthew was with him from the early days at the Sea of Galilee. When he, when, when, he, when he saw there by the Sea of Galilee, i got to follow this man, where he left his tables, right? And he, he followed. He's an eyewitness. And here's what he says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked, him, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man, there it is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Only two places I could find where both of those are used together. Here in a place called Caesarea Philippi. I don't know how much you know about Caesarea Philippi, but it's significant to the story. It's a Roman city at the time of Jesus, named after a Roman warrior, a Roman king, a Roman ruler named Philip. Caesarea comes from the fact of the Caesars, and it is a Philip that this, is, this city is given to. It's a Roman city once held by the Greeks, but taken by the Romans. And in this particular day, the Romans are enjoying this wonderful place. Now, as will often happen with pagans, what happens? They decide that this Caesarea is important for several reasons. If you understand the place where Caesarea finds itself or is located, you'll understand. It's north of the Sea of Galilee in an area known today as the Golan Heights. Have you heard of the Golan Heights? It's in the place called the Golan Heights at the foot of Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon, which is the highest place in all of Israel. Now, here's what makes this place special. 
I never understood it. In fact, for the longest time, I would hear about all this fighting that was going on in the, the Golan Heights between Israel and Syria and Israel and Lebanon and, and, and Israel and Jordan. And why are they fighting over this little Golan Heights? There's nothing there. Well, that's Western American thinking. There's nothing there in my mind because we have water everywhere. But in a dry, arid land where there's very little water, a spring here and a spring there, the lifeblood of that nation is the Jordan River that flows down from the north and dumps into the Sea of Galilee and then flows out of the Sea of Galilee down south into the Dead Sea. That Jordan River Valley is the source of water. Caesarea Philippi is the location of one of the main head springs of the Jordan River. You can go there today and you find water gushing from that site, even in those springs today. So whoever controls those headwaters has great, even today in our modern age, think about it. They can dam up the Jordan River. They could stop it. They can turn it. Whoever controls the Golan Heights. So it's in the Golan Heights. Now, because water is such a, an important place, the Roman pagans, the Greek pagans, decide this is the place where we need to set up altars to the gods. Because they're all the gods of the universe. All the gods need to be worshipped. The, the god of fertility and, and the god of agriculture and the god of rain and the god of water. You know, they had a god for everything. And so they set up in Caesarea at the head springs temples in honor of their gods. Four major temples there and other miners. And inside that place or at the place where the springs come out, there are two unique geographical um, figures. There's a cave there, a grotto, if you will, a cave in the side of the cliff and a cliff that goes up with niches carved into the side of the cliff. If you could imagine that wall as a cliff as I'm seeing it right now, these little niches, almost shelves, and on those shelves, each of those shelves is the idol to one of their gods. So it takes on the name of the Mount of the Gods, the Mountain of the Gods, Mount Hermon. And here there are all of the temples. The temple to Pan. Pan, he's the goat-shaped God who escorts people into hell, into Hades. And so this cave there at Caesarea Philippi is, was called by the pagans the gates of hell. And Pan, that's where people would go and Pan would meet them there and carry them down into hell. It's a place where they sacrifice humans to gods. It's a horrible place. And yet it's there that Jesus brings his disciples intentionally. It's there that Jesus says to his disciples, we need to go and have a talk. And it's in the middle of that, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked a question. I can almost see it. I don't know if you can see it, but in my holy imagination, I can see it. He's got his followers with him. They come into this incredible city called Caesarea Philippi. They look up all these temples to every god you could think of, all of these idols and these niches everywhere you can look at. And Jesus looks at them, takes them outside the city and says, no, guys, I know you just saw what I saw. Let me ask you this. What are people saying about me? What are people thinking about me? What he's really asking is, 
Where's my idol? Is there, is there an idol? What are people saying about me? Are they, do they think I'm a man? Do they think I'm God? What are they thinking? He doesn't say that, but he asks, what are people saying about me? Let's read on. What does he say? They replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he nails them with a question that is so important. He says, okay, but who do you say that I am? Can I just say, listen to me carefully. The whole point of this message really boils down to this in the end. And I want to prepare you for that. What really matters is what do you say about Jesus? Not what do I say, not what your friends say, not what your, your teammate says. What do you say? He says, what do you say? And Simon Peter, don't you love Peter? So brash. He's the guy that speaks up. He's the guy that answers the question. He has to be an extrovert. He says, you, look at it, verse 16. You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Wow. What a statement. You do understand, don't you, that all the Jews have been waiting for the Messiah since Daniel wrote about him. Since Isaiah wrote about him, Isaiah said he's going to be a son of man. Isaiah said he's going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah called him Emmanuel, that is God with us. Both of them talking about the fact that this Messiah that is coming is God and man. And they've been waiting for this Messiah all this time, but here's the problem. The Messiah came and they didn't even see it. And so when Peter says, you're the Messiah... The Christ, the word means anointed of God, the Son of the living God. Peter says, I get it. Look at the response of Jesus in verse 17. He responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. <laughs> I love that. He says, don't you understand, Peter? You didn't just get this because you got lucky. This was not an academic decision that you made. It's not like you waited in the balances and came up with this solution. It's not like you figured it all out. He said, God has revealed this to you. And I'm absolutely convinced that that truth still holds today. And that many people are blinded to the truth of who Jesus is. And honestly need the Spirit of God to open their minds, open our minds to see. Because when you see it, it's like, how could anybody ever doubt it? How could you not see it? And then Jesus makes a curious statement. He says to Peter, after declaring that God has revealed this to you, look at verse 18. He says, I also say to you that you're Peter. <clears throat> you're Peter. You're no longer Simon. Remember, names are significant in Scripture. Names to the Jews carried weight, carried significance. He said, you're Peter. The word me is Petros, rock. Actually, a small rock, but a rock. And then he says, you're Peter. And on this rock, different word, this boulder is the idea. I will build my church. Now, Please listen to me. I don't have time to develop this completely, but listen to me carefully. 
If you look at the original language, it becomes very clear that he's talking about two different things. He's not saying, I'm going to build my church on Peter. He's going to say, I'm going to build my church on this boulder, this statement of faith, this truth that you that has been revealed to you that so many don't see. And that is that I am the Christ. I am the son of the living God. I am not just a man. I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not just a person that, can, that has this gift of healing. I am God. And by the way, throughout the Gospels, we see him declaring that he is God. Over and over, he's convincing, trying to convince his disciples, I am God. All through the Gospel of John, he uses a statement, I am, I am, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. He just often uses this phrase, I am. And what we miss in our Western world is, we miss the fact that he is declaring to everybody, I am God. He, he uses the same verbiage that the Hebrews would use to talk about God. So he's declaring, convincing, I'm God, I'm God. I'm, yes, I'm a man, but yes, I'm God. It is so critical. Because that's where we have to come to today. Our whole faith rests on this truth. You see why I started this off by saying, whoever, I don't know if maybe one of you asked this question, but whoever asked this question, thank you. Because the answer to this question is the foundation of our faith. And that is that Jesus was fully God and yet fully man. And both are needed. This union of those two. How do you make a union between God and man? It's called by theologians the hypostatic union. How, does, how do those natures come together? It's an incredible study. There's more about it on our more video. It's the foundation of our faith. Now listen to me carefully. If Jesus is not fully God and not fully man, our faith has nothing to rest on. And we're no different than those gods in the niches on the mountain of the gods in Caesarea Philippi. But because he is fully God and fully man, we have a Savior who is more than able to accomplish the purchase of our salvation. Let me show you that. That obviously you didn't decide about that as I did. I mean, that just blew me out of the water. So I, you say, did you know that, Pastor? Pastor, yeah, I knew that. But I never get tired of thinking about it. It always stirs in me a new thought. I'm going to build my church. By the way, the word church there is really the word for a gathering. The church comes from a German word that comes from the Latin Vulgate, a translation of it. And I don't want to go into all that except to say church is a word that was kind of brought together for us, and that's one that we talk about or use, but really the word here is gathering. Jesus says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a gathering of people. I'm going to start a movement. That's really what he's saying. Did you realize if you're a follower of Christ today, if you're a part of the church today, you're really a part of a movement, a movement that started 2,000 years ago, and guess what? Here we are. And what have we done? We've gathered together on this Sunday why have we gathered together? Well, to preach and to sing? No. We've gathered together to honor and celebrate Jesus in all of his goodness and grace and glory. We're here to celebrate the salvation that he's brought to our souls. We're here to encourage one another and love one another and teach one another and worship with one another and all those things. We are just gathered together. This building's not the church, right? You say, well, why in the world are you spending so much time on Saturdays working on the building? Here's why. Because this building's just a tool that the church uses. 
This is just a tool to serve our community. I mean, after all, if it's raining outside, you're pretty glad we have this building. Amen? You don't want to sit out there in the rain. We use this building. Aren't you pretty glad the air conditioner's running right now? I am. But it's not the church. The church is the gathering of people. And we come together and we gather together to worship. And when we leave here, the church scatters to continue to be the church. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. And then he adds a very important line. Remember, he says, and the gates of Hades, the, the gates of hell will not overpower it. Does that take on a new meaning for you? You see, he's standing there at Caesarea Philippi. He's standing there where all the pagans say, this is the gates of hell. And if you don't treat these gods as gods, you're going to go straight to hell. And Jesus says, I'm more powerful than any of these gods on this mountain, and I'm more powerful than hell itself. And there's nothing that's going to stop the movement. Not even hell itself will stop the movement. All the demons in heaven and earth will not stop the movement. All of the wickedness that mankind can muster will not stop the movement. The movement is headed forward. He told them that in a wilderness or there at Caesarea Philippi 2,000 plus years ago. And here we sit. So you figure it out. I think it's pretty important. But I wonder if they didn't have a question. Because you know what happens next? I don't want to get into this too much. I'm about out of time. Y'all aren't listening fast enough. But... Let me show you this. You know what happens next? If you take your Bible, it's not on the screen, but if you were to follow along in your Bible, you could see that the beginning of the next chapter says this. And from that time, from that moment, when Peter makes this statement, from that moment, he tells him about this movement, and he says, oh, by the way, I'm headed to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And I'm wondering if his disciples aren't thinking well, what does that mean to us? You've just told us you're starting a movement. You just said we're going to have a gathering, and this gathering is going to follow you, and, and now you're saying you're going to die. What happens to us? How do we go forward? And Jesus, Jesus knew something they didn't quite understand, and though he told them they couldn't quite grasp it, he said, I'm going to die. But to prove that everything that I've told you is true, Three days later, I'll rise. And when I rise, we're splitting death and hell wide open. And you'll know that I am God as I claimed. They didn't even understand that immediately after the resurrection, did they? Because what did they do at the cross? They flew it. They fled. And they hid. And when the women came and told the men about the empty tomb, what they do? They ran to the tomb because I can't believe it. Can't believe it. Can't believe it. And Peter runs and John runs and as they get to the tomb, what? He's gone. It wasn't until they saw him again and began to understand, oh, wait a minute, this is what he said. This is what he was saying at Caesarea Philippi. This is what he was saying throughout the last part of his ministry. He was telling them, I'm going to die, yes, but three days later I'm coming out. Why? Because he is God. He's not just a man Crucifixion proved he was a man because he died. Resurrection proved he's God because he rose again. You see, both are critical. 
So why is it so important that he be man? Okay, I understand, Pastor Eddie. It's important that he be God. I get that part. But why is it so important to be man? Well, let me show you one passage of Scripture, and I'll quit. And I promise, but I'm going to show you this because I think it's so important. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Aubrey, I'm going to circle around with that takeaway, okay? So just be ready. But right now, 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 18. This is so powerful because Peter, his, that same Peter that made that announcement at Caesarea Philippi. Now, Peter is about to write this letter. He writes this letter, and watch what he says. Incredible. He says, beginning in verse number 18, For you know that you were redeemed. You know that you were redeemed. Wait a minute, don't go by that too quickly. You know that you were redeemed. That, you know what it means to be redeemed? It means to purchase. It means bought. That is, you know you're bought. God purchased you. God redeemed you, brought you back. He redeemed you from what? From your empty way of life inherited from your fathers. He said, God brought you back from the sinful, death-laden condition that your daddy, Adam, left you with. You have to get that from Paul. Paul talks about that, right? Remember how when Adam sinned, all sinned? When Adam sinned, he passed that sin down to us, and we are born sinners, right? Romans 3, you know that scripture, for all have sinned. How do we know that all have sinned? Because we're born sinners. Anybody got a problem with that? Well, I wasn't born sinner. I was born pure, white, clean. Well, something happened to you then between one day and two years. Amen? Anybody had a two-year-old? Did you have to teach that two-year-old to do wrong? No. There's a sin nature that even as a little baby cries out. A.J. said little Dax was sick. And guess what I knew immediately about little Dax? And guess what I knew immediately about A.J.? He didn't get much sleep last night. Because little Dax is crying out saying, me, 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 I need attention. Of course he does. We all do that when we're sick. My point is this. He came to redeem you from that sinful nature. That nature that makes your default destination hell that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. This is so good, i got to hurry. You were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. In other words, when God bought the salvation of your soul, he didn't use gold. Aren't you glad? I'm not sure I would have wanted to know what I was worth in monetary value. <laughs> and what if I was worth more than you? Or what if you were worth more than me? What if he spent $20 on you and two on me? Or what if he spent 20 on you and 300 on me? Ha, ha, ha. No, no, no. It had nothing to do with who we are or how we are or how good we are or how much we're worth. No, no, no. He said he didn't do these perishable things like money. He, but he, he bought us with the precious blood. Of Christ. Where does blood come from? Our body. Our body. You're beginning to see it. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. You see, from the beginning, when God first moved to cover the sin of man, what did he do? He killed an animal. And he took the coats of the animal, the scripture says, the skin of that animal, and he clothed Adam and Eve, showing us that there's a principle here that a holy God must keep, and that is innocent must die for guilty. 
We see it all through the Old Testament. Right up until the time of the cross where the innocent one, the just one, the righteous one dies for the unjust. That's you and me. What an incredible, incredible passage. And so he says, let me read on a little bit. This is good. You'll be glad I did. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. There's God. Is there anybody that could have been before the foundation of the world? Any man? No. There's God. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed, uncovered in these last days for you. I don't know if you thought about that, but the Old Testament tells us nobody can see God. No man has seen God at any time. In fact, when Moses said, can I see you, God? He said, you can't look on me. If you look on me, you'll die. I'm a purer eyes than to look upon sin. No, you can't look at me. But when God stepped down from heaven and took the flesh of a little baby in Bethlehem, suddenly God revealed to us and we, here's what John says, we could see his glory. We be, the word was made flesh, he said, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory for the first time. Dadgummit, I'm fixing to jump off this stage, y'all. I'm, a, I'm just, just me excited. I don't know, it might not do anything to you, but he's revealed in these last times. Watch this, verse 21. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He said he did this. Why? Not just because he could. Not just to say, oh, look what God can do. He did it that we might believe in God and those who believe, John 3, 16, what? Have everlasting life. And when Jesus, when God raised him from the dead, (laughs) we know that he's God. The resurrection settles it for me. Andy Stanley said it as good as anybody I've ever heard. He said, you know what? You show me a man who can predict his death, burial, resurrection, and pull it off, and I'm going to be on his side. I'm on his side. Why? Because he is not only a man. He is God. But thank God. God, that God became a man and took a body, flesh, and blood that he might offer it as a sacrifice for my sin that God could take his blood and purchase my eternal salvation and I don't have to worry about the gates of hell because Jesus is more powerful than those. So here's the last statement, the takeaway, and I promise I'm done, and we'll go get lunch. Here's the answer to the question as far as I'm concerned. How can Jesus be called the Son of Man? Who's called the Son of God? He is the Son of Man because He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. I'm talking about title here. I'm talking about humanity. I'm talking about this title that Daniel assigns him, that Revelation seems to give him, this title of the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man because He is the Son of God. In other words, He is who He said He is and I'm here to tell you as his messenger it's up to you to believe or not but I'm telling you as his messenger it's true it's true he is fully God he is fully man somehow joined together in a union that made possible my salvation 
pray with me. Heavenly Father, oh, thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for how you move in us. Thank you for the salvation that you brought to our souls. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about it this morning. Lord, when I talk about this, frankly, I feel so inadequate. So small. But I believe this is what you called me to do. And so I just am thankful that you get me, allow me to bear witness to the truth of this doctrine. Now, God, would you reveal to hearts and lives today who are in this room or listening to this podcast, would you reveal the truth that we've talked about here today? Now, in the quietness and the silence of this moment, I want to invite you to think about you. Jesus said to those followers on the hill near Caesarea Philippi, who do you say I am? I think the key question today is, who do you say Jesus is? If you say he's a prophet, a teacher, you're right, but not fully. If you say he's a good man who benefited mankind, you're right, but not fully. If you deny that he is fully God, you've missed it. And my prayer today is that you will see he him as fully man, yes, but as fully God. God who stepped out of heaven, wrapped in flesh, that we might behold his glory. And that he would appear one day to offer his blood, his body, for our salvation for your salvation so I trust you will trust him today 